and uh, we want to continue our studies in the Upper Room Discourse. I want you to bear in mind that, that, this, uh, that this discourse is really a conversation. Um, they had left the Upper Room by this point, traveled down through the Kidron Valley, and they were on their way up the western slope of the uh, Mount of Olives. And as they walked through the, uh, through the olive trees and the vineyards there, the Lord was conversing with the disciples. Now, we, don't, we really don't have all the conversation here, I'm sure. What, what John has recorded for us is just the salient facts, just the really important things. And I'm sure there were asides and explanations and, and other questions that were asked. And the Lord would say, Peter, hold the flashlight a little more steady and uh, watch out, John, don't fall into that hole and, and whatever, as they made their way up, up the side of the hill. It was a conversation. And that's one of the things that makes this passage so difficult to understand because there are portions of it that seem to be left out. And uh, it's a little bit difficult sometimes to follow the the thread of of the argument. We also need to be watchful of these chapter divisions because, as you know, as the Lord spoke, he wasn't putting in verse and chapter divisions. He didn't stop at this point and say chapter 16, verse 1, and then go on with his his discourse. Uh, These chapter divisions are artificial, and sometimes they obscure the way the conversation is running. And that's what we have in chapter 16. It's in the wrong place. Because in chapter 16, Jesus simply continues his discussion that he began with chapter 15. They rose, uh, at the end of chapter 14, they rose from the upper room and began to make their way to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, in chapter 15, in summary fashion, gives the disciples... Three things they need to know about every area of life. He picks up the three essential spheres of life, and he tells us what our responsibility is in each one. Do you you recall what they were? We spent two weeks talking about chapter 15. What are the three areas that he describes? The three spheres of influence. What's the first? Our, Our relationship to God. What's the second? Our relationship to the church, to one another to the brothers and sisters in the family, and what's the third? To the world. What, uh, should, what is our, um, what's the key word in terms of our relationship to Christ? Abide. Abide in Christ. Rest in, in Him. Trust Him. Live out of His life. Draw on His resources. Just as a branch draws on the resources of, of the vine. What's the uh, key word in terms of our relationship with one another? Love one another. And then in terms of the world, witness to the world. Those are the three things that we need to know. It struck me last Sunday while, uh, while Steve was speaking. Steve Newman, I think his name is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that uh, as a church, we need to be learning how to abide in Christ, how to love one another, and how to witness to the world. And if we get that down, then we've, in, 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 uh, in summary fashion, we understand what God expects from us in every area of life. Now, in chapter 16, Jesus continues on talking about our relationship to the world. Uh, remember, Steve told us last week that the world will hate us. That's the attitude of the world to the church. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. When somebody rejects you or uh, you're cut out of some group that you would like to be in or when someone rejects you as a person, uh, don't be surprised because the world will hate us. 
because they hated the Lord. And as the Lord told the disciples, you can't expect the servant to get any better treatment than the master. If they hated me, he said, they will hate you. Now, that hatred may take the form of merely of indifference, but it's still hatred. We can't expect anything less. But despite the hatred of the world, we're to witness to them. And what we're told in chapter 28, or, or verse 26, rather, is that the helper who will come actually is the antecedent witness. That is, he witnesses before we do. He goes first. Now, we often we, we think that just the opposite is true, that we witness and the Holy Spirit corroborates our witness, but that's not true. The, the Spirit of God goes before to lay down the foundation. He is the first witness, and our witness is supportive of him, of his witness. In verse 26, he tells us, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. That's the first witness. In other words, he will speak to men's hearts. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. See? So our... The Spirit of God goes before to prepare the way for us. And then he continues along that same line. Chapter 16 is simply a continuation of the theme that, he, that he's begun in chapter 15. Now let's read the first few verses. 16.1. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to make uh, animal traps out of boxes. You take a big wooden box, like a peach box, and uh, you tip it up on one end, and then you can make a little figure four uh, trigger stick for it, and you prop up one end of the, uh, of the box, and you put a piece of fruit or a piece of meat, depending on what you're trying to catch on the bait stick, and then you can go home. And the next day, hopefully, you come back and you find a squirrel or a rabbit or something in your trap. I'm sure a lot of, a lot of you people have done the same thing. The key to the whole uh, operation is this little figure four trigger uh, stick that holds up the box. Now, that's not a new way of making, uh, making traps. That sort of trap goes way back into ancient times. As a matter of fact, the Greeks had a word for that little, four, uh, little figure four uh, trigger stick. They called it a scandalon. And uh, the verb form of that noun is the word that's translated stumbling in verse 1. These things, that is, these things about the helper who's coming, and these things about the animosity of the world, I have told you to keep you from being scandalized, I suppose literally, we would say. The point that he's making is that uh, it's easy for us to get trapped by the world. We can be taken in by the world and the world's way of thinking. We can be ensnared. What God wants us to be is free. He wants us to learn how to live in the, in the midst of a world that hates us and yet be free to love them and uh, to witness to them, to share our life openly without feeling inhibited and pressured by the hatred of the world. Uh, you know, I, I really think that that's something that we as Christians need to learn. We need to learn how to live around non-Christians and not be scandalized by them, taken in by them, entrapped by them. Not only ensnared in the sense that we begin to think like the world does, that, but that we learn to be free around non-Christians. 
most of us, I think, are really, un- are really inhibited around unbelievers. We just don't know how to act. And when you first become a Christian, you're very free around non-Christians because that's your, that's your, all your friendships are there. That's where you feel most comfortable. But something begins to happen to you after a while, and uh, you lose that freedom. You feel inhibited. A little, they sort of cramp your style. They, they swear. They, they smoke. They do all sorts of things, you see, that, that are a little bit offensive to us, and we're, it make us a little bit uptight, and we just don't know how to, how to treat them uh, as friends. Now, Jesus did. He was, he was the friend of sinners. And the reason he's called the friend of sinners is because he had a whole bunch of people around him that he counted as friends who were non-Christians. Now, it's a good question to ask ourselves periodically, how many friends do I have that are sinners, that are non-Christians? How many do you have? How many do I have? How do I, how do I live around them? Do, do they bother me? Do I get a little bit embarrassed when I'm around them, or can I really be free? Now, you see, this is what the Lord wants us to learn. This is what, why he gave the disciples the principles that he's going to outline in this, in this chapter, because he wants them to be free around the unbelieving community, to be completely uninhibited, to be able to openly and honestly share our relationship to Christ and our life with people outside the family. That's, that's the goal. I've often thought that, um, you know, these little fish stickers that we put on the back of our cars? There's nothing wrong with fish stickers. I don't have any problem with that. But it just struck me one day while I was driving through the middle of downtown San Francisco, I saw a fellow right in front of me with a, with a car with a fish sticker on the back. And here he was, and, and understand me, I, you know, I'm not down on fish stickers, okay? I don't have one on my car, but I'm not down on them. And this fellow was driving through the middle of San Francisco, and outside was all this wickedness. And here he was in his little hermetically sealed capsule, see? His air conditioning going, and... I presumably was listening to a Christian radio station, and there's nothing wrong with Christian radio stations, but you know, he was tuned in to KEAR in San Francisco, and in, in this both ears, beautiful music, and he was, he was driving right through the North Beach area of San Francisco and all the ugliness and the, and the stuff going on around him. And, and here he was in his car, and he couldn't smell any smoke, he couldn't hear any cursing, uh, but he had his fish sticker on the back. And that was his witness. And it just dawned on me, that's the way most of us witness to the world. We just kind of dash through in our little capsule. And uh, we, you know, there's a, little bit of a, there's a little bit of truth going out. But we're really not going to contaminate ourselves by honest-to-goodness, real-life contact with people in the world. But, you know, that's exactly where God wants us to be. That's where Jesus spent his time. He got out in the world. He got out on the streets. He talked to prostitutes on the street corner. That would embarrass the socks off of you and me. But that's where he spent his time. He didn't hang a shingle out on the front of his his office that said, uh, Evangelism done here. (laughs) See, he went out into the world. Now, that's where God wants us to be. Not be worldly, but if we can coin a, a, a phrase, be worldy. That is, be in contact with the world, but be godly people. That's the goal. Uh, Jesus was separate from sinners, separate in a vertical sense. You see, he wasn't, he didn't fall into their sin. He never sinned, but he was right in the middle of sinners all the time. And that's why he was always criticized for being a wine-bibber and a glutton, whatever a wine-bibber is. But that's what he was criticized for, you see. 
And he wouldn't have been criticized for being that if that wasn't where he was. He went to parties where there were non-Christians. That was highly offensive to the religious people of his day, but that's where he was. And that's where we need to be, where the non-Christian world is. If we're going to have any impact whatever on society, that's where we've got to be. And in this chapter, the Lord tells us how to be comfortable in that, in that sort of setting. Now, he warns them that the time is coming when they will cast you out of the synagogues and even further. He says, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. You know, that's precisely the way the Apostle Paul speaks. He says that he, in Acts 26, that in killing Christians, he felt he was rendering service to God. So it can happen. Jesus predicts that it would happen, and it did happen. Now, you and I may not experience that sort of hostility in the world today, in our setting, but there are people today that are experiencing this sort of hostility. They're being ostracized. They're being thrown out of their families. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their tenure as teachers or whatever. Uh, Some of them are facing death. I have a friend, Harry Hoffner, who who teaches uh, now at Brandeis, who uh, was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. And uh, he became a Christian. Jesus became his Messiah. And uh, his family threw him out. But they went a step further. They went out and bought a casket and a grave, and they buried him. Not really, but uh, in, uh, in symbol, they buried him. They put that casket in the ground, and there's a tombstone there that says Harry Hoffner. As far as they're concerned, he died. For years, they returned his letters unopened. They would not speak to him. They would have nothing to do with him. And you see, he's, he was experiencing on a first-hand basis what Jesus is talking about here. He predicted it, and it happened. And he said in verse 3, they'll do these things because they do not know the Father or me. And Steve talked about that last week. It's not that they don't know about the Father. It's that they won't acknowledge him as the Father and the Son as, as the Son. He says in verse 4, but these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes... You may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. You see, Jesus bore the brunt of the attack when he was uh, with them uh, in his incarnate state, when he walked with them on the earth. He himself bore these attacks. And so it was not necessary for him to prepare them to this extent. But now he's leaving, and they're going to experience this sort of hostility. And so he's telling them in advance so they'd remember when it occurs. It's their hour now, and he's preparing them for that hour. And then in verse 5, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, as, uh, as you know, that question had been addressed to the Lord earlier when he said, I'm going away. But they misunderstood. They thought he was going to another country or some other place. And so they said, where are you going? And the Lord had to explain in chapter 14 and following that he was going to the Father's house. So now they knew that he was going back to God. They should have asked, what does this mean? Where are you going in the sense uh, that, you know, what's the significance of your going? What does it mean to us that you're going to the Father? But he says, you're not asking that question. You've given way to despair. You're just uh, depressed. 
in verse 6, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They, like us, were, were asking the wrong questions. You know, their questions were self-centered. They were just thinking about themselves. And what Jesus wants them to know is that his going away is necessary because it's that that will prepare them to face the sort of hostility that they'll face in the world and give witness to the gospel. Now, notice how he, how he develops uh, his conversation. Verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, it was necessary for Jesus to go to the Father before he could fulfill his program in terms of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples. And he's going to, through the rest of these verses, tell us precisely what that ministry is. He had to go. The Holy Spirit would come, and through the Holy Spirit's coming, he would equip them to be the kind of witnesses that God intended them to be in the world. Now, this is what he says. Verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. All right, now he told them earlier that uh, their responsibility was to witness to the world. How would they do that? Well, he's told them that the Spirit would have a first witness to the world. What would he do? What would he say? Jesus says he'll convince the world. That's the meaning of that term, convict. It means to to bring to someone's conscience uh, a sense of guilt. He'll convict the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then so there will be no doubt, he tells us specifically what that sin is and the nature of the judgment and what he means by righteousness. First, of sin. He'll convict the world of sin because they do not believe on me. Now, notice he does not say he will convict the world of sins because there's only one thing that God convicts the world of, and that's sin. What's sin, specifically? Look at the text. Don't look at me. What sin does the Holy Spirit convict the world of? Unbelief. Unbelief in in the Lord Jesus. That's the only sin, as far as the world is concerned, God's attitude toward the world, that's the only sin that bothers God. You know, it's, you, may not, uh, you may not fully appreciate this, but it does not concern God in any primary sense that people are adulterous in the world or that they smoke dope or that they hold up banks or that they start wars, or that men are unkind and unjust to their wives or their children or their employers. That's not his primary concern. That grieves him. But that's not what separates the world from God. The only thing that separates men from God, the only thing that really bothers God is the fact that they do not believe. And it's that that the Holy Spirit convicts men of. That's what he speaks to non-Christians about. 
the need to believe in Jesus. Now that tells us something about the nature of our witness. What should we tell people about their condition? Well, um, we need to tell them that God is concerned about the fact that they do not believe in Jesus Christ. We should not sit in judgment on them because they smoke dope or because they swear or even because they use God's name in vain because that's not the problem. One of the problems in getting along with non-Christians is adjusting to their vocabulary or to their worldview or to the way they treat their wife or the way they run their business. And we have to work with them, and it bothers us. Now, there are very moral non-Christians. I don't mean to give the impression that all non-Christians are immoral, but we all know some who are, and that bothers us. But you know, God's not primarily concerned about the fact that a man is unjust to his employers, employees or that he cheats on his income tax. What concerns God is that he doesn't know Jesus Christ. And it's that, that aspect of the truth that we need to, we need to, to uh, speak of. All right, now that's the first thing the Spirit does. He convicts the world of sin, and specifically the sin of unbelief. Secondly, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. Jesus was the perfect standard of righteousness as he walked through the world. Anyone could look at Jesus, at Jesus and say, that's what it means to be righteous. And now he's going out of the world, and there's no perfect standard of righteousness. Non-Christians can look at us, and uh, they can see flaws all over us. And we may not be very convicting to them because we're not righteous in an absolute sense. But it doesn't matter because the Spirit of God convicts the non-Christian world of a standard of righteousness. You do not need to tell people in the world what they need, what they ought to be. They know. They know. There's a there's a sense of of ought. It's just built into the hearts. What Paul calls the law that's written into the heart. I was in uh, sitting in a barber shop the other day. I really do go to barber shops every once in a while. Now, most of you probably thought I got my haircuts in the donut shop, but I don't. And uh, the seats were all filled up, and, the, and the, the fellow in the seat right next to me was talking about his family and how messed up it was and how what a wretch his wife was and how he wanted out of the relationship, and he made some comment about, uh, I haven't seen a good marriage. Um, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't see it at home. I haven't seen it around me. I don't think it exists. I think we ought to just cancel out the institution of marriage. And his barber friend was agreeing with him. And I listened to it for a while and uh, couldn't help but say, well, that hasn't been my experience. I really love my wife. I really like my kids. We're very fond of each other. And I began talking to him about, about what, you know, the sort of family life that God has given to us. And uh, the amazing thing is that, that people all around begin to say, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right, sure. That's the way it ought to be. But, and then they went on to say, we can't do it. But the thing that struck me is that people know that's what they want. It's what they long for. They want to be righteous. They want to have the right kind of, uh, of life and the, and the right sort of behavior. You don't need to tell them. They long for it. And it's the Spirit of God that, that uh, 
that ministers to people in that way. He teaches them what righteousness is. Even though they may not have a righteous standard, they know. And then thirdly, Jesus says the Spirit will witness concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is, we are accountable for our sins. There is a judgment coming. And again, you don't have to tell people that a judgment is coming. They know it. They know there will be an accounting someday. Um, I don't know how many of you remember that television program a few years back called That Was the Week That Was. Uh, It's one of the best uh, television programs on the air. And uh, uh, it was highly satirical, and, and they poked fun at everything. But there was one very sober moment in an otherwise kind of ridiculous night where David Frost was sitting behind a, a card table. And a man comes up to the card table with a, a bowler on. And behind David Frost were two doors. One door said heaven, and one door said hell. And uh, the man said, which way do I go? And David Frost said, you know. And the man said, oh, come on, tell me, which way do I go? And, and Frost said, you know. And he said, please tell me, which way do I go? And Frost said, you know. And the man took the bowler off his head and crushed it up and walked through the door to hell. Now, I don't know if David Frost is a Christian or not. But that was a very poignant moment. Boy, that really hit home. And it indicated to me, again, that people know. We don't need to beat people over the head with the fact that a judgment is coming and that they're sinful or even that they disbelieve the gospel. You know, sometimes we we preach the gospel at people and they don't believe it and we think it's because our presentation is not powerful enough or we haven't been persuasive enough. But you see down underneath, they know. They know. They're rejecting for moral reasons, not intellectual reasons. Not because they don't see or know the truth. It's because they don't want to come to Jesus Christ. See, the great thing is that the Holy Spirit has already prepared the hearts of people. We just need to give witness, to corroborate the witness that the Holy Spirit has already given. All right, that's that's the first thing. Oops, my time is gone. The Spirit of God convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not only the trios that take four minutes to get warmed up. Verse 13, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you. That's Jesus speaking, not me. (laughs) But you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now this is what he's saying. In the first section, he's talked to us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world. He will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church. And what he, what he tells us, if I can summarize briefly, is that the Spirit of God takes the things of God, the things that the Father and Son know. The Son knows the Father. The Father knows the Son. They know each other inside out. They know everything about each other. The Holy Spirit takes those things and he passes them on to the disciples, the apostles. 
Here specifically the apostles. When he says he will disclose all things to you, he's thinking about the apostolic band. These 11 men that are sitting in front of him. Not uh, all of us, uh, all Christians who will believe because of their, of their witness, but the apostles. And he says two things. He will teach you all things about me. He will glorify me. And he will teach you things to come. Now he's already said back in chapter 14, verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And Steve pointed out that was fulfilled in the writing of the Gospels. All the Gospels were written by an apostle, with the exception of the Gospel of Mark, who wrote under Peter's authority. See, these men were supernaturally reminded of the truth, and that's, what, that's why they could write the, the, the uh, Gospels with such accuracy and remember all that, that had transpired during the three and a half years they were with Jesus. And now Jesus says to the, to the apostles that the Holy Spirit will continue to teach them, and these are the things you find in the epistles, the letters that the apostles wrote, and the book of Revelation, and the other predictive prophetic sections of the New Testament, the things to come. This, this prediction, this promise was fulfilled in the writing of the New Testament. He says to the disciples, I have many things to tell you, but this isn't the time. You're not ready. As a matter of fact, the story is not over. You still had to go to the cross, and the resurrection had to occur, and the formation of the church, the coming of, of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. When the right time comes, he says, I'll teach you all things. Now, not everything in the world, because the Bible doesn't teach us everything in the world. It doesn't teach us about mathematics. It doesn't teach us about geography. But all things that pertain to salvation. Everything that will make you wise to, in, unto salvation. Everything you need to know to know how to, how to please God. He would teach the apostles, and the apostles in turn would write it in a book, and that became the New Testament. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world is to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And his ministry to the church is to teach us everything we need to know about how to walk with God and to please him. So what else do we need? Jesus said, it's necessary for me to go. This won't happen if I don't go. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus hadn't gone? Suppose he were still incarnate today. He'd be living in Palestine. And there'd be a few people that could hear him teach, or maybe with television, a few more. But just suppose you had a problem and you tried to get him on the phone. Why, my goodness, you'd have to wait days. Or you made a pilgrimage to Palestine just to have a little bit of time to counsel with the Lord and be taught by him. Why, the line would stretch from Jerusalem to Damascus. Have you ever thought, wouldn't it be great to have the Lord right here with us today? as he was in the days when he was with the apostles and we could actually see him and touch him and talk to him and walk down the road together with him. No, it wouldn't be wonderful at all. The marvelous thing is that we do have him here today in the same, the same person that was with the disciples, but he's here in the person of the Spirit of God and everybody has access to him. You don't have to call him up on the phone. He's right here. And if you need instruction for life, you have it right here. This, these are his words that he taught the apostles and they passed it on to us. And if you need power for witness to the world, you have it because the Spirit of God 
is already at work bringing the world around to a position of belief in Christ. So what do we need? We have everything available to us to fulfill the calling that God has given to us. All right, let's pray, shall we? Father, you're such a marvelous Lord to us, and we thank you so much for providing for us, for going ahead to prepare the way for us, to make it possible for us to befriend people outside uh, the family and uh, to get to know them and, and love them and, and uh, impart to them the message that uh, has set us free. And we thank you also for the access that we have to you through the word of the apostles and through the Spirit of God who's here, here in our presence tonight. We ask that we begin to draw on that power and trust you for all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>